homage to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Welcome back, young friends, and everyone joining for this gradual teaching series. We are continuing to look at the Buddha's gradual instructions on the blessing of renunciation. In today's session, we're looking specifically at the great fruit and benefit of observing the Upasatha. What we'll cover in this session is what is the Upasatha? We'll deep dive into a teaching the Buddha gave to Visakha on the Upasatha. And then we'll look at how we observe the Upasatha and a few other suttas that are very interesting. So what is the Upasatha? It translates as observance day, Sabbath day, day of practice, day of fasting, abstinence and renunciation. This is a day where lay people undertake to observe the eight precepts, listen to the teaching of the Dhamma and practice in accordance with the Dhamma. It's usually the day preceding the nights of the new moon and the full moon and the night midway between the two, so the 8th, the 14th and the 15th days of the lunar fortnight. It's also the day when the Sangha assembles to confess any faults and to recite the Patimokkha, and this may also intensify their practice on that day. The Sutta that we'll now focus on is the Upasatha Sutta. It's in Anguttarakaya Chapter 3, Discourse Number 70. And this is the main teaching where the Buddha talks with Visakha about the Upasatha. So it begins by saying, Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Migaramatha's mansion in the Eastern Park. Then Visakha, Migaramatha, on the day of the Upasatha, approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, and sat down to one side. The Blessed One then said to her, Why, Visakha, have you come in the middle of the day? Today, Bhante, I'm observing the Upasatha. And then the Buddha replies, There are, Visakha, these three kinds of Upasatha. What three? The cowherd's Upasatha, the Niganthas Upasatha, and the noble one's Upasatha. And then the Buddha goes on to explain, and how Visakha is the cowherd's Upasatha observed? Suppose, Visakha, in the evening a cowherd returns the cows to their owners. He reflects thus, Today the cows grazed in such and such a place and drank water in such and such a place. Tomorrow the cows will graze in such and such a place and drink water in such and such a place. So too, someone here observing the Upasatha reflects thus, Today I ate this and that food. Today I ate a meal of this and that kind. Tomorrow I will eat this and that food. Tomorrow I will eat a meal of this and that kind. He thereby passes the day with greed and longing in his mind. It is in such a way that the cowherd's Upasatha is observed. The cowherd's Upasatha thus observed is not of great fruit and benefit, nor is it extraordinarily brilliant and pervasive. With this particular explanation from the Buddha, the cowherd's Upasatha, you can see it's like our everyday life. Each and every day we think about, what did we eat today? What did we drink today? And then we think about, oh, tomorrow I'll have this or that. So there's no specific renunciation in this kind of observance. It's like a normal day where you're infused with a level of greed towards what you're going to eat and drink. So this is the first Upasatha that the Buddha explains to Visakha. And the Buddha explains the second kind of Upasatha and says to Visakha, and how Visakha is the Niganthas Upasatha observed? There are Visakha ascetics called Niganthas. They enjoin their disciples thus, 
Come, good man, lay down the rod toward living beings dwelling more than a hundred yorginous distance in the eastern quarter, in the western quarter, in the northern quarter, and in the southern quarter. Thus they enjoin them to be sympathetic and compassionate towards some living beings, but not to others. On the apostles of the day, they enjoin their disciples thus. Come, good man, having laid aside all clothes, recite, I am not anywhere the belongings of anyone, nor is there anywhere anything in any place that is mine. However, his parents know, this is our son, and he knows these are my parents. His wife and children know, he is our supporter, and he knows these are my wife and children. His slaves, workers and servants know, he is our master, and he knows these are my slaves, workers and servants. Thus on an occasion, when they should be enjoined in truthfulness, the Niganthas enjoin them in false speech. This, I say, is false speech. When that night has passed, he makes use of possessions that have not been given. This, I say, is taking what has not been given. It is in such a way that the Niganthas Uposatha is observed. When one has observed the Uposatha in the way of the Niganthas, the Uposatha is not of great fruit and benefit, nor is it extraordinarily brilliant and pervasive. The key thing to understand from this explanation by the Buddha of this second kind of Uposatha about the Niganthas is that their renunciation, although better than the cowherd's Uposatha, it is not complete. It is still lacking renunciation that would give great fruit and benefit. Because as the Buddha has said, they are very selective in who they are sympathetic and compassionate towards. They are also not observing the precepts correctly. So this is the second kind of upasatha that the Buddha explains to Visaka. And then the Buddha explains to Visaka the third kind of upasatha. And this is the upasatha that we're going to spend the most time on, the Noble One's upasatha. Because if we understand this, then we know how to correctly observe the upasatha and we can attain and realize the great fruit and benefit. So the Buddha says, and how Visaka is the Noble One's upasatha observed? The defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? Here, Visaka, a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata thus. The Blessed One is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the Blessed One. When a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata, his mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned in the same way that one's head, when dirty, is cleansed by exertion. And how, Visaka, does one cleanse a dirty head by exertion? By means of cleaning paste, clay, water, and the appropriate effort by the person. It is in such a way that one's head, when dirty, is cleansed by exertion. So, too, the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? And so the Buddha goes on to talk about the recollection of the Tathagata. So when that's done, you recollect the Tathagata, one's mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. This is called a noble disciple who observes the Apostata of Brahma, who dwells together with Brahma. And it is by considering Brahma that his mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. It is in this way that the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. So what we see here is, it's important to recollect the Tathagata on the Uposatha. It helps to clean the head. And we clean it by exertion. 
which really means that we put effort towards the task. We strive towards the task of recollecting the Buddha. And in many ways, it's letting go of unwholesome thoughts to enter into the wholesome. So the unwholesome thoughts might be anything that is troubling the mind, making it dirty. And we recollect the Tathagata, the Buddha, doing a Buddhanusati so that it enters into the wholesome. And so this is like the Buddha's simile here of cleaning a dirty head by exertion, by striving, making effort towards that. In the next part, the Buddha goes on, the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? Here, Visaka, a noble disciple, recollects the Dhamma thus. The Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, to be personally experienced by the wise. When a noble disciple recollects the Dhamma, his mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned in the same way that one's body, when dirty, is cleansed by exertion. And how Visaka does one cleanse a dirty body by exertion? By means of bathing brush, lime powder, water, and the appropriate effort by the person. It is in such a way that one's body, when dirty, is cleansed by exertion. So too the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? Here Visaka, a noble disciple, recollects the Dhamma. And then it goes on. And when a noble disciple recollects the Dhamma, his mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. This is called a noble disciple who observes the apostata of the Dhamma, who dwells together with the Dhamma. And it is by considering the Dhamma that his mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. It is in this way that the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. So we see here that the second recollection as part of observing the Bhusatha, is recollecting the Dhamma, so Dhammanusati. So if we do this, then we are cleaning the dirty body by exertion. Buddha calls this dwelling with the Dhamma, observing the Bhusatha of the Dhamma, and it is considering Dhamma that the mind becomes placid, joyful, and the defilements are abandoned. So again, we let go of any unwholesome and enter into the wholesome with our reflection or contemplation of the Dhamma. Then the Buddha says again, the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? Here, Visaka, a noble disciple recollects the Sangha thus. The Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is practicing the good way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way. That is, the four pairs of persons, the eight individuals. This Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is worthy of gifts worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. When a noble disciple recollects the Sangha, his mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned in the same way that a dirty cloth is cleansed by exertion. And how, Visaka, does one cleanse a dirty cloth by exertion? By means of heat, lye, cow dung, water, and the appropriate effort by the person. It is in such a way that a dirty cloth is cleansed by exertion. So too the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? Here Visaka, a noble disciple, recollects the Sangha. And the same explanation. When a noble disciple recollects the Sangha, his mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. This is called a noble disciple who observes the apostata 
of the Sangha, who dwells together with the Sangha, and it is by considering the Sangha that his mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. It is in this way that the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. So the Buddha here is telling us to do Sanghanusati, recollecting the Sangha. We drop all the unwholesome and enter into the wholesome thoughts of the Sangha. The four kinds of persons, the eight individuals, those that have path and fruit of stream entry, once return, non-return, and the Arahant. And we make effort towards this. So the Buddha simile here is of a dirty cloth that we are cleaning. So we are cleaning the mind in the same way. This is very similar to how you would use the simile of the cloth in the Vatupama Sutta. But in this respect, the medicine here that the Buddha is giving is recollecting the Sangha, that they have all these good qualities and that they're worthy of certain hospitality, respect and so on. So this is the third aspect to the Bhosatha that the Buddha talks about. And again, the Buddha says, the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? Here, Visaka, a noble disciple recollects his own virtuous behavior as unbroken, flawless, unblemished, unblotched, freeing, praised by the wise, ungrasped, leading to concentration. When a noble disciple recollects his virtuous behavior, his mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned in the same way that a dirty mirror is cleansed by exertion. And how Visaka is a dirty mirror cleansed by exertion? By means of oil, ashes, a roll of cloth, and the appropriate effort by a person. It is in such a way that a dirty mirror is cleansed by exertion. So too the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? And the Buddha talks again the same explanation about virtuous behavior. So when a noble disciple recollects his virtuous behavior, his mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. This is called a noble disciple who observes the apostata of virtuous behavior, who dwells together with virtuous behavior. And it is by considering virtuous behavior that his mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. It is in this way that the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. So again, we make effort here to recollect our own virtuous behavior. If you remember when we went through the gradual instructions of the Buddha on virtue, this is what we looked at. We looked at virtuous behavior. We recollected our virtuous behavior and the mind definitely brightens and lifts up. So the Buddha simile here is of a dirty mirror. It reminds of Venerable Mahamogalana's teaching in the Anumana Sutta, the simile of the mirror. You look at yourself in the mirror and you, you look at for the blemishes. So this is what the Buddha says, when you recollect your own virtuous behavior, it's like cleaning that mirror and you can rejoice in many ways that you are in the wholesome. And again, we strive towards this. And then the Buddha says again, the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? Here, Visaka, a noble disciple recollects the devas thus. There are devas ruled by the four great kings, Tadatinsa devas, Yama devas, Tusita devas, the devas who delight in creation, the devas who control what is created by others, devas of Brahma's company, and devas still higher than these. I too have such conviction as those devas possessed of which, when they passed away here, they were reborn there. 
I too have such virtuous behaviour, such learning, such generosity, such wisdom as those devas, possessed of which, when they passed away here, they were reborn there. When a noble disciple recollects the conviction, virtuous behaviour, learning, generosity and wisdom in himself and in those devas, his mind becomes placid, joy arises and the defilements of the mind are abandoned in the same way that impure gold is cleansed by exertion. And how Visakha is impure gold cleansed by exertion? By means of a furnace, salt, red chalk, a blowpipe and tongs, and the appropriate effort by the person. It is in such a way that impure gold is cleansed by exertion. So too, the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? And then the Buddha explains again the same thing from above about the devas and how you recollect the devas. When a noble disciple recollects the conviction, virtuous behavior, learning, generosity and wisdom in himself and in those devas, his mind becomes placid, joy arises and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. This is called a noble disciple who observes the apostata of the devas, who dwells together with the devas, and it is by considering the devas that this mind becomes placid, joy arises and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. It is in this way that the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. So we looked at length at the devas, particularly when we looked at Sagakata, the heavenly realms, and we went through each of the different kinds of devas, and we also did a guided meditation specifically on the pure abodes, anagamis and arahants in the pure abodes. And we did do this meditation of recollecting their virtuous behavior, their sadda, their conviction, their learning, their generosity, and their wisdom. And so if you remember, when you recollect in this way, it's very lifting in terms of where the mind, it, it brightens significantly. So this is what the Buddha says as a simile, you're cleaning the impure gold. So it's getting more and more subtle. So as we've gone through reflecting or recollecting the Tathagata, recollecting the Dhamma, recollecting the Sangha, and then recollecting our virtuous behavior, now we're refining it even more to recollect the, the Devas. What's really important about this part of it is that like goes with like. So when you look at your recollecting the Buddha, then you're keeping company with the Buddha. You recollect the Dhamma, you're keeping company with the wholesome Dhamma. You recollect the Sangha, again, you're recollecting and you're keeping company with those four pairs and the eight individuals that have entered the stream and more. And now when you recollect the Devas, you are recollecting all the great parts of their practice. In order for them to have been reborn in those places, they would have practiced very good sadda, conviction, with conviction, very good virtuous behavior, learning, generosity, and wisdom. And so we are saying we want to be like all these noble beings who are ascending upwards at the very least. So this is another part of the Upasatha. So you can see when you start recollecting, given that we've done some of these guided meditations before, you can see that the mind gets uplifted. So when you observe the Upasatha in this way, it's such that the Buddha said, the mind becomes very placid. It means it's malleable, it's calm, it's peaceful. And joy arises because it's you've brightened the mind, you've abandoned all the stains in the mind from envy to competition to anger, all those things. And the mind has really uplifted itself. When those defilements are abandoned, that's where you get the blessing already starting to come through. We can now consolidate what we've been learning 
with the Vitata Upasatha Sutta. This is in Ankutra Nikaya number 8, discourse number 42. And the Buddha says, Observed complete in eight factors, the Upasatha is of great fruit and benefit, extraordinarily brilliant and pervasive. And how is the Upasatha observed complete in eight factors, so that it is of great fruit and benefit, extraordinarily brilliant and pervasive? As we go through the different factors, what we'll note is that we are imitating the Arahants. So the Arahants are the perfected ones. They no longer have any more training to do. And we walk behind them because they are giving us the good example. They have the perfection of renunciation. So in our case, we are training to do that and we are observing the Upasatha as a day of renunciation. So with the first factor, the Buddha says, a noble disciple reflects thus. As long as they live, the Arahants abandon and abstain from the destruction of life. With the rod and weapon laid aside, conscientious and kindly, they dwell compassionate toward all living beings. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abandon and abstain from the destruction of life. With the rod and weapon laid aside, conscientious and kindly, I too shall dwell compassionate towards all living beings. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect, and the Upasatha will be observed by me. So we can see here, this is exactly what we should be thinking and reflecting upon on the Upasatha. We will give up killing, we'll put all the rods and weapons aside, we'll be diligent in how we attend to this, with kindness and with compassion. And so if we do so, then we will be able to realize the fruit and benefit of the Upasatha. So this is the first factor. With the second factor to be observed, the Buddha says, a noble disciple reflects thus, as long as they live, the Arahants abandon and abstain from taking what is not given. They take only what is given, expect only what is given, and dwell honestly without thoughts of theft. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abandon and abstain from taking what is not given. I shall accept only what is given, expect only what is given, and dwell honestly without thoughts of theft. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect, and the Apostata will be observed by me. This is very good on the Upasatha for lay people because quite often when you think about lay life, you can go out and spend money and buy anything that you want really according to how much money you have. So on this day, part of the renunciation is to put that down and to dwell honestly without the wanting. Even when it comes to food in particular, many people go to the monastery or the temple on the Upasatha to observe because you go to the monastery and temple and see what is offered. The mind gets quite calm and peaceful when it doesn't have to think about these things. At first you think it's quite difficult, but once you get used to this kind of observance, you realize having expectations, when you put that down, the mind gets quite peaceful. So the perfected one, when you think about, they don't take what has not been given and they don't expect for things and they dwell quite honestly without thoughts of theft or stealing or wanting. It's quite a perfection. And so if you come closer to it, Simply by observing the Upasatha, the mind gets quite clean, quite purified. Then the third factor to be observed, the Buddha says, a noble disciple reflects thus, as long as they live, the Arahants abandon sexual activity and observe celibacy, living apart, abstaining from sexual intercourse, the common person's practice. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abandon sexual activity and observe celibacy, living apart, abstaining from sexual intercourse, the common person's practice. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect, and the Upasatha will be observed by me. This is 
something that lay people don't normally associate with. When we take the five precepts, the third precept is really to refrain from sexual misconduct. But when we take the eight precepts, this particular factor becomes refraining completely from sexual activity. And there's a certain purity that comes when you abandon sexual activity, when you observe the celibacy. And so when you observe this third factor, it can be very fruitful, very beneficial. Then the Buddha describes the fourth factor to be observed. A noble disciple reflects thus, as long as they live, the Arahants abandon and abstain from false speech. They speak truth, adhere to truth. They are trustworthy and reliable. No deceivers of the world. Today for this night and day, I too shall abandon and abstain from false speech. I shall speak truth, adhere to the truth. I shall be trustworthy and reliable. No deceiver of the world. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect and the Apostatha will be observed by me. With this fourth factor, what you notice when you observe the Apostatha, it's very good to observe noble silence. So when there is anything that needs to be said, it is really only practical matters, if not nothing at all, unless it's the Dhamma, trying to investigate the Dhamma, wanting to understand the Buddha's teaching, wanting to see whether you can clarify certain things in the meditation. This is an excellent opportunity on the Upasatha not to deceive oneself, not to deceive others, and to really genuinely see when you quieten down the mind, you realize how much is really needed to be said. It's actually less. Because when we open our mouths, what has the propensity to come out is all the untruths, all the things that are rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion. And so there's a falsity in what we're saying. There's a deception to ourselves and to others. So when you reflect on an Arahant, and this is really lovely about how the Buddha says this, we're imitating the Arahants. If you even have an inkling from the, the suttas and the Jathakas and, and different stories that come up, you see, they don't speak anything other than the Dhamma. And when they speak the Dhamma, it's for clarification or for repeating what the Buddha said. And in that way, there is no falsity to what any of the Arahants are saying. What you will notice time and time again when you observe in this way, the mind quietens down, the mind does get quite happy. Then the Buddha explains the fifth factor to be observed, and he says, A noble disciple reflects thus, As long as they live, the Arahants abandon and abstain from liquor, wine and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abandon and abstain from liquor, wine and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect, and the Apostatha will be observed by me. So when we look at this particular precept again, we are not allowing the mind to go into delusion, negligence. When one drinks wine, liquor, and takes intoxicants, maybe drugs or things like that, then the mind gets very blurred. It gets covered, very difficult to lift. So on the Apostatha, we specifically refrain, and we do this, to imitate the Arahants. The Arahants do not take these kinds of intoxicants and alcohol and, and things that basically obliterate the mind because otherwise you can't perfect it. The mind will not be malleable. It won't be properly fit for even contemplation. So this is something to bear in mind that even outside of the Apostasy, it's very good not to indulge in liquor, wine and intoxicants. It's not helpful to the path.
The Buddha then explains the sixth factor by saying, A noble disciple reflects thus, As long as they live, the arahants eat once a day, abstaining from eating at night and from food outside the proper time. Today, for this night and day, I too shall eat once a day, abstaining from eating at night and from food outside the proper time. I shall imitate the arahants in this respect, and the apostatha will be observed by me. So we know that when we take the eight precepts and we take this sixth factor, what we do is we don't eat past midday. When we do this, this is really about eating in moderation. It is actually very good for the health when you don't eat at night. And so for this day, we are actually only eating in moderation and we're following in the footsteps of the arahants. What you notice is that the mind no longer gets troubled by going to the fridge, thinking about what to cook, what to buy, or any of those things. It frees up the mind energy that would have gone into food preparation and an indulgence in food in order to direct it more to the wholesome factors towards observing the Upasatha. And so in this way, the mind actually gets lighter, much, much lighter. And so there's great benefit from observing this sixth factor. By observing on the Pusatha, you're renunciating the increase of greed and also reducing the existing greed towards food and drink. So it's a very wholesome thing to do. Then the seventh factor, the Buddha says, a noble disciple reflects thus, as long as they live, the Arahants abstain from dancing, singing, instrumental music and unsuitable shows, and from adorning and beautifying themselves by wearing garlands and applying scents and unguents. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abstain from dancing, singing, instrumental music, and unsuitable shows, and from adorning and beautifying myself by wearing garlands and applying scents and unguents. I shall imitate the arahants in this respect, and the apostatha will be observed by me. With this seventh factor, we're really doing our best not to become negligent. It's really about the delusion that comes with negligence. And so when you dance, sing, listen to music and watch unsuitable shows, whether it's on the TV or social media and things of that nature, then what you're doing is you're deluding the mind, corrupting the mind. And then when the Buddha says one doesn't adorn and beautify themselves, it's really to see the body correctly. You see how it really is. It is aging. It does decay. And so on the Apusatha, what you're doing is you're trying to correct the view. It's all coming from trying to see things truthfully. This particular seventh factor is all about reducing the delusion in the mind, coming towards more wisdom as opposed to delusion or ignorance. Then the Buddha explains this eighth and final factor and he says, A noble disciple reflects thus, As long as they live, the arahants abandon and abstain from the use of high and luxurious beds. They lie down on a low resting place, either a small bed or a straw mat. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abandon and abstain from the use of high and luxurious beds. I shall lie down on a low resting place, either a small bed or a straw mat. I shall imitate the arahants in this respect, and the apostatha will be observed by me. So this eighth factor is really to remove conceit, remove arrogance, and to simplify. This is very much about simplicity. When you're sitting in high and luxurious beds or sofas, what happens is the body starts to go into postures which can be quite slack. And also there's a conceit when you sit in a high and lavish sort of seat. So the mind doesn't become so malleable towards the Dhamma as well. 
So it's important on the oppositor to bring it back down to ground level, to really look at humility as a very good quality, and also not to allow the body to weaken. When you sit in luxurious seats or beds, the body starts to weaken and slack off, starts to adopt the wrong kinds of postures. And so the mind starts to sink. So it's really important when you observe the oppositor to sit in a conducive place with the right posture. We can summarize the eight factors or the eight precepts as refraining from killing living beings, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from engaging in sexual intercourse or any kind of sexual activity, refraining from false speech, refraining from taking intoxicants, refraining from eating food between moon and the following dawn, refraining from singing, dancing, or watching entertainment, and refraining from using ornaments, cosmetics, or perfumes, and refraining from sitting or lying on large, luxurious, or high seats or beds. What we see from looking at these eight precepts, and when we take these eight precepts and observe them, what we are doing is we are refining our sila, our virtuous conduct. We are setting conducive conditions for the calming of the mind. We are refraining from greed, hatred and delusion, but instead we are entering into non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And so when you practice with these sets of factors, these precepts, and the conditions that arise from keeping these precepts, then you know it's very conducive to calming the mind, purifying the mind, and developing insight towards the Buddha's teaching. And of course, to be able to practice in accordance with those teachings. After explaining the eight factors to be observed on the Upasatha, the Buddha then asks, to what extent is the Upasatha of great benefit and fruit? To what extent is it extraordinarily brilliant and pervasive? Then the Buddha answers with a statement to Visaka. Suppose one were to exercise sovereignty and kingship over these 16 great countries abounding in the seven precious substances, that is the countries of the Ungans, the Magadans, the Kasis, the Korsalans, the Vajis, the Malas, the Chetis, the Vangans, the Kurus, the Panchalas, the Machas, the Surusenas, the Asakas, the Vantis, the Gandharans, and the Kambojas. This would not be worth a sixteenth part of the Uposatha observance, completing those eight factors. For what reason? Because human kingship is poor compared to celestial happiness. If you remember when we looked at the heavenly realms, we looked at the realm of the four great kings, the Tavatinsa, the Tusita, and so on, all the way up to the pure abodes. We looked at the lifespan, the longer lifespan. We looked at the treasures that abound in those deva realms. They are far superior, they exceed what can be experienced in the human realm. So that is why the Buddha says it's not worth a sixteenth part of the Upasatha observance. So it's in this way that it's very fruitful and beneficial to observe the Upasatha. If we come back to the Upasatha Sutta, the Buddha closes his teaching to Visaka by saying, One should not kill living beings or take what is not given. One should not speak falsehood or drink intoxicants. One should refrain from sexual activity, from unchastity. One should not eat at night or at an improper time. One should not wear garlands or apply scents. One should sleep on a low bed or a mat on the ground. This, they say, is the eight-factored Upasatha proclaimed by the Buddha who reached the end of suffering.
as far as the sun and moon and sun revolve, shedding light so beautiful to gaze upon, dispellers of darkness moving through the firmament, they shine in the sky brightening up the quarters. Whatever wealth exists in this sphere, pearls, gems and excellent beryl, horn gold and mountain gold, and the natural gold called hataka, those are not worth a sixteenth part of an apusata complete in the eight factors, just as all the hosts in the stars do not match the moon's radiance. Therefore, a virtuous woman or man, having observed the Apusatha, complete in eight factors, and having made merit productive of happiness, goes blameless to a heavenly state. So the thing to take away from observing the Apusatha is that one makes merit. And when you are complete in the eight factors, when you observe the eight precepts, one can say one is virtuous. So you are blameless. And in that way, you are walking with the noble ones. It's extremely wonderful at the end of observing Upusatha that you can reflect that time was time well spent. That time was not a waste. That time is banked that when it comes to the end of life, the number of Upusathas you have observed accumulate there is a gladdening of the mind. You would never think that you have wasted time at the end of your life if you reflect back on the number of upasathas you have observed. It is when you haven't observed those upasathas that one would regret because at the point of death, you're looking at what have I done towards this path? What have I done towards the truth? What have I done in terms of practice towards the ultimate safety and security? If you have not observed the Upusatha at that point, you would regret because you would think, what's going to happen now? Have I trained the mind? Have I got sufficient virtue? All those different types of things. Have I been walking with the noble ones? Have I kept company with the Devas? Have I observed the Upusatha with the Devas, with Brahma, with the wholesome virtuous conduct, with the Sangha, with the Dhamma? When you haven't done so, there would be many regrets because you are in danger and fear for your life because you could be bound to the unknown in terms of what happens lower realms, be reborn into the human realm, but with bad karma ripening, one doesn't know. But if you bank the Upasatha each and every month, sometimes twice a month, sometimes four times a month, then you know that it is a very wise investment. We always talk about investing in ourselves and we talk about it in terms of education. We talk about it in terms of making money. We talk about it in terms of making a family, doing service in the world. These are all conventionally very good things. But when it comes to the safety and security of the Buddha's teachings, what he says, particularly for lay people, is to observe the Upasatha. And so if you want to make a wise investment while still doing the conventional things like studying and getting a good job and having a family, the important thing is to make sure you prioritize at least once a month observing the Upasatha. What is once a month if you can give up, renunciate the world just for one day each month and look at the blessings that the Buddha is talking about? A virtuous woman or man, having observed the Upasatha complete in eight factors and having made merit productive of happiness, goes blameless to a heavenly state. So when you listen to Dhamma on the Upasatha, when you keep precepts on the Upasatha, when you contemplate the Buddha's teachings, when you get to the higher states of mind, then you make a lot of merit and you go blameless.
So we've looked at this when we've looked at dana, sila, sagga, kata, all those three. So very important. And you also give up sensual pleasures. And if you are listening to the correct Dhamma, you understand the danger in sensual pleasures as we've spoken about. So these are all the blessings of renunciation. It's very important to know this. This is the wise investment as you go through life, particularly as a layperson. There's a sutta called the Vasetha Sutta. And this is where Vasetha, a lay follower of the Buddha, comes and speaks to the Buddha about the Uposatha. And the Buddha runs through the eight factors to be observed for the Uposatha. And at the end, Vasetha says to the Buddha, Bhante, if my beloved relatives and family members would observe the Uposatha completing eight factors, that would lead to their welfare and happiness for a long time. And he repeats the same for Kathiyas, so the ruling elites, for the Brahmins, the Vesas and the Suttas, that it would lead to their welfare and happiness for a very long time. And the Buddha endorses what he says about all those different classes of people. But then he also says, if the world with its Devas, Mara and Brahma, this population with its ascetics and Brahmins, its Devas and humans, if they would observe the Uposatha completing the eight factors, that would lead to the welfare and happiness of the world for a very long time. If these great soul trees would observe the Uposatha completing the eight factors, that would lead to the welfare and happiness of those great soul trees for a long time, if they could choose. How much more then for a human being? So the extent and the greatness of observing the Uposatha cannot be diminished. It's very great. It's very superior. The Buddha is talking about trees. If they could choose, then it would also lead to their welfare and benefit. In fact, the whole world is what the Buddha is talking about. If the whole world with all the different kinds of living beings were to observe the Uposatha, it is for their long-lasting welfare and benefit, their happiness. The extent to which observing the Uposatha in terms of renunciation, in terms of the fruit of it, it's very great. There is also another sutta called the Navanga Uposatha Sutta. This is in Anguttanikaya chapter 9, discourse number 18. This is where there's a ninth factor added to the eight factors we've already been through. It says, where a noble disciple dwells pervading the entire world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, vast, exalted, immeasurable, without enmity, without ill will, is of great fruit and benefit, extraordinarily brilliant and pervasive. So if you observe the eight precepts on the Uposatha and you also cultivate Metta Bhavana, so if you do the meditation from Metta school that we followed, the Karaniya Metta Sutta, then this is also of great benefit and extraordinarily brilliant and pervasive. And you can see why. It's because when you do that meditation, you're again purifying your conduct through body, speech and mind. And you're refining your sila and correcting the view in that meditation. And you're doing that for the welfare and well-being of all sentient beings. When you see the Dhamma correctly, you can cultivate that, develop that and spread that to all living beings. It's of great benefit. And as we know from when we looked at our teaching on that, there's many blessings as well. Many blessings of cultivating metta. If you remember from our Sagakatha, when we looked at the gradual instructions on the heavenly realms, there was a question from someone about the Nagas and the Naga realm. And in the answer, we saw that Nagas are also concerned about observing the Uposatha. 
that they have so much concern about being reborn either into the kingdom of the Nagas or being reborn into a happier destination. They are prepared to even relinquish concern over their own bodies, loss of life, in order to observe the Aposatha. So there's a Jataka story called the Kampeya Jataka where the Bodhisattva was a Naga king. And in that particular Jataka, if you remember, he couldn't practice in the Naga realm because there were too many temptations. And so when that was the case, he decided to go to the human realm. But there are always risks when you go to the human realm of being caught, being attacked, being killed. But he would still do that. And so that story is a very interesting one. The extent to which a Naga would go, some of them, in order to observe the Aposatha. So even at the risk of losing their body or being injured or captured, and so they also practice, some of them, in order to correct their body, speech and mind, in order to practice so that they may be reborn into a happier destination, a heavenly realm. In the Chattu Maharaja Sutta, this is in Anguttarikaya Chapter 3, Discourse Number 37, we learn very interesting things about the realm of the Four Great Kings and their connection with the human realm. In particular, we learn about what they rejoice in and what they find displeasure in. So the Buddha says, because on the eighth of the fortnight, the ministers and the assembly members of the four great kings wander over this world, thinking, we hope there are many people who behave properly toward their mother and father, behave properly towards ascetics and Brahmins, honor the elders of the family, observe the Aposatha, keep the extra observance days and do meritorious deeds. On the 14th of the fortnight, the sons of the four great kings wander over this world, thinking the same thing. And then on the 15th of the Oposatha day, the four great kings themselves wander over this world thinking the same thing. So then it says, if because there are few people who are doing those observances and behaving properly, then the four great kings report this to the Tavatinsa Devas when they meet and are sitting together in the Sudhamma council hall. And they say, Reverend Sirs, there are few people who behave properly towards their mother and father and so on. Then because of this, the Tavatinsa Devas become displeased saying, alas, the celestial company will decline and the company of Asuras will flourish. But if there are many people who do behave properly toward their mother and father and do all those great things, the four great kings report this to the Tavatinsa Devas when they meet and are sitting together in the Sudhamma council hall. And they say, Reverend Sirs, there are many people who behave properly toward their mother and father and do all those correct observances, etc. And they do all the extra observance days and meritorious days. Then because of this, the Tavatinsa Devas become elated, saying, Indeed, the celestial company will flourish and the company of Asuras will decline. So it's very interesting the different roles that they have and how they come to observe the human realm, but also what they rejoice. They rejoice when people look after their mother and father. They rejoice when there is respect given to ascetics and Brahmins, when there's honor given to elders of the family, and particularly when there is observing of the Uposatha and even the extra Uposatha days. And also when people are making merit, they're doing meritorious deeds. So they know that when these things are there, they can accept the company of the devas to increase, not decrease. And when people are not doing those good deeds, not observing the Uposatha, not taking care of their elders, the ascetics and Brahmins, then they know that the company of the lower realms, including the asuras, will increase and the deva realms will decline.
And it's very important for us to take that on board as well, that devas rejoice good behavior, virtuous behavior. Devas rejoice the making of merit. They know the good result, the good karmic result that comes from renunciation, that comes from giving, that comes from virtuous behavior. It's also good for us to look at an example of some deva who has realized due to observing the Obosatha as a human, how they came to their mansion or their uh, good kamma. So as we know, Venerable Mahmogulana would travel to the deva realms and ask particular questions. So we have one example in the Uttara Vimanavatu. So this is Vimanavatu number 15, and this was about Uttara's mansion. So Venerable Mahamoglana says, Devata, your beauty shines in all directions like the bright star named Osadi. What are the meritorious deeds that led to this happiness? Tell me, Devata, what kind of meritorious action did you do when you were in the human world to have gained this beauty that shines in all directions and to have earned all these wonderful things? And the Deva replies, In my previous life, I was a housewife in the human world. I did not envy anyone, I was not greedy, nor was I arrogant. I was good to my husband and did not get angry at him. I was eager to observe the eight precepts four times a month on each of the four moon phases. I led a restrained life and was very generous. I abstained from killing, stealing, lying and taking intoxicants. I did not cheat on my husband. I was delighted to keep these five precepts every day. I was a lay follower of Gautama, Supreme Buddha, who had the great wisdom to see the reality of the world. I was wise enough to realize the Four Noble Truths. Because of my virtuous life and meritorious deeds, I live very happily here. I have been born as a beautiful Devata and enjoy all the wonderful things that delight my heart. So we see here, this particular Devata, not only did she keep the five precepts, she also observed the Uposatha four times a month. And she had a very restrained life and she was a good wife and had noble qualities and she was also wise enough to realize the four noble truths and because of that she was born into the deva realm the heavenly realm and she got this wonderful mansion and great beauty so we can see here this is an example from the celestial world of what fruit can be born from observing the Oposatha, as well as keeping the five precepts and leading a very upright and virtuous life. We are now coming to the end of our Dhamma session, which looks at the blessing of renunciation in this way. And what we've seen in this session is the correct way of observing the Oposatha, the different component parts and factors, and also what it means for the Buddha to say that it is of great fruit and benefit to observe the Aposatha and to see it as extraordinarily brilliant and pervasive. And in this last sutta, the Saka Sutta, this is in Anguttanikaya number 10, discourse number 46, what we're looking here is the last part of this, which is the strong encouragement that the Buddha is giving to lay people, in this case the Sakyans. The Buddha asks, Sakyans, do you observe the Aposatha with its eight factors? And they answer him, Sir, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And then the Buddha says, That's your loss, Sakyans, it's your misfortune. In this life, with its fear of sorrow and death, you sometimes keep the Oposatha, you sometimes don't. And then he says, What do you think, Sakyans? Take a man who earns half a dollar for an honest day's work. Is this enough to call him a deft and industrious man? And they reply, Yes, sir. 
Then the Buddha says, what do you think, Sakyans? Take a man who earns a dollar for an honest day's work. Is this enough to call him a deft and industrious man? And they say, yes, sir. And then the Buddha asks the same question, but he talks about $2, $3, $4, all the way up to $100. And he says, is this enough to call him a deft and industrious man? And again, the Sakyans say yes. And then the Buddha asks again, what do you think, Sakyans? Suppose that a man earned $100 or $1,000 every day and saved it all up. If he lived for 100 years, would he not accumulate a large mass of wealth? And the Sakyans answer, yes, sir. Then the Buddha then says, what do you think, Sakyans? Would that man, on account of that wealth, experience perfect happiness for a single day or night, or even half a day or night? And the Sakyans answer, no, sir. Why is that? Because sensual pleasures, sir, are impermanent, hollow, false, and deceptive. And then the Buddha says, but take one of my disciples who lives diligent, keen and resolute for 10 years, practicing in line with my instructions. They can experience perfect happiness for 100 years, 10,000 years or 100,000 years. And they could become a once returner or a non-returner or a guaranteed stream enterer, let alone 10 years, take one of my disciples who lives diligent, keen and resolute for nine years, eight years, seven years, six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, 10 months, nine months, eight months, seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, a fortnight, 10 days, nine days, eight days, seven days, six days, five days, four days, three days, two days, let alone two days. Take one of my disciples who lives diligent, keen and resolute for one day, practicing in line with my instructions, they can experience perfect happiness for a hundred years, 10,000 years or a hundred thousand years, and they could become a once returner or a non-returner, a guaranteed stream enterer. It's your loss, Sakyans. It's your misfortune. In this life, with its fear of sorrow and death, you sometimes keep the Upasatha and sometimes don't. Well, sir, from this day forth, we will observe the Upasatha with its eight factors. So the important thing to receive from this particular teaching of the Buddha to the Sakyans is that it is a very, very wise and precious investment to take the Buddha's instructions, and in this case, the Buddha's instructions about the Upasatha, as well as all the other teachings of the Buddha, take his instructions and be diligent with them, keen on them, resolute with strong determination to them to practice with those teachings for at least one day, at least two days. When we observe the Upasatha, it's very important because this is the day where we are in line with the Buddha's teachings and where we are walking in the footsteps of the noble disciples of the Buddha and following also in the footsteps of the devas who have practiced with conviction, practiced with generosity, practiced with learning, practiced with virtue and wisdom. So this is the encouragement that when we look at the blessing of renunciation and we take the example of observing the Upasatha as a very, very good recommendation from the Buddha, then it is for our long lasting welfare and benefit. And not only that, not just ascending upwards or experiencing celestial happiness in future lives, but if we enter the stream, there is far greater safety in entering the stream and practicing and progressing onwards from that. And we've spoken about stream entry in different modules of this gradual instructions of the Buddha. So you know that 
the safety in stream entry, it reduces the amount of dukkha that one experiences from infinite dukkha to a maximum of seven lifetimes of dukkha. So it is extremely precious in that regard. If you take anything away from this session, it is an encouragement from the Buddha towards learning how to observe the Apusatha and making effort towards doing so at least once a month. And if you can do more than that, that's even greater, greater happiness. We've now come to the end of our session on the great fruit and benefit of observing the Upasatha. Let's share the merit of our session and blessings with all sentient beings. May all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem, wishing you well. Teruan Saranai.